Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jadikin. We're going to start out the show by thanking our lovely Patreon contributors. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This week we had Emma, Sinead, Lou, Robin, Jennifer, Darcy, Lisa, Kelsey, Sential, Justine, Brittany, Ashley, Carrie, Claire, Amanda, Antonia, Kiana, Lindsay, Tom, Ellen, Amy, Courtney, Michael, Susie, and Big Mike, Anthony, Pam, Ashley, Miso, Whitney, Beth, Katie, and Allie. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Okay. So today we are going to take a look at the life and crimes of Lou Perlman. Lou was a huge figure in late 90s pop music, creating bands like Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, and LFO, but his empire came crashing down when allegations of fraud and theft began piling up. The final nail in his coffin was the exposure of one of the all-time biggest Ponzi schemes in American history. So my sources for this episode are The Hit Charade by Tyler Gray, Bands, Brands, and Billions by Lou Perlman, Mad About the Boys, which is a Vanity Fair article article written by Brian Burrow, and the boy band Con, a documentary by Lance Bass on YouTube that you can watch for free and is very good, and I highly recommend it. So let's just get started. Lou Perlman was born in 1954, the only child of High Perlman, who ran a dry cleaning business, and Renee Perlman, who was a school lunchroom aide. He grew up in the Mitchell Gardens apartments in Flushing, Queens, and it was here that he developed his entrepreneurial skills. In his 2002 book, Bands, Brands, and Billions, he describes an idyllic childhood and discusses his early days as a businessman, or I should say business child, because he was very, very young when he starts these schemes or whatever. His early endeavors included a lemonade stand when he was eight, which he set up outside of a bus stop to take advantage of the commuter business. Another savvy decision, instead of charging five cents a cup, he charged seven cents a cup, knowing customers would throw a dime his way and tell him to keep the change. Wow. They did, and he doubled his profits. He also claims to have bought the local paper routes from older kids and expanded the money-making potential by adding door-to-door service and like he also like says in this book that he contacted Dunkin Donuts and got them to like work with him so he also offered people breakfast on Sundays if they wanted to add that to their delivery uh so in his book he talks about this and acts like he made this huge money it was like this huge money making scheme but in the documentary they actually have childhood friends of his including the guy he says he bought the paper route from and this guy said it never happened well yeah, he's like, he's like, why would, how would you even sell a paper route? <laughs> he's like, that isn't even a thing. Like, um, that's probably my favorite part about the documentary. Like, they talk to people he grew up with and childhood friends, and it's really interesting because they kind of all give you the real scoop. Because Lou has really created this 
like fiction about who he was and who what his life was. Like he's this little child prodigy entrepreneurial. Yeah. Kid. And it's like I think the the thing you'll see over and over in this story is there's always like a kernel of truth that he has spun into this bigger uh thing. But it's usually just not true. So another part of Lou's fabled origin story is how he became an aviation obsessive, according to Lou, of course. <laughs> in 1964, when he was 10, he said that while he was looking across the Whitestone Expressway from his bedroom window, he saw a Goodyear blimp landing at Flushing Airport for the World's Fair. He was an instant helium head and balloonatic, which is what hot air balloon, I mean, sorry, blimp people, <laughs> whatever blimp aficionados call themselves. Balloonatics? Balloonatics. <laughs> Did he make that up or was that? No, I think that that was like a, a thing that people called themselves. There like, were enough people who were fans of blimps. You're, you're, we're about to get an education in blimps because <laughs> wow. there are people who are really into blimps and they even call them like airships. Like they don't even call them blimps. Uh, so Lou claims he was obsessed with getting a ride in the Goodyear blimp. And after begging the people who were like working in the hangar on the Goodyear blimp, they just told him that access to the blimp was only for journalists or for VIPs. So Lou says in his book that he got an assignment writing about the blimp for his paper, his local paper, and then he got credentials and that was enough for him to finally get a ride on the Goodyear blimp. Never, ever, ever had a desire to ride in a blimp. <laughs> Me or, either. Or a hot air balloon for that matter. Me either. What if it pops? No it thanks. It seems quite obvious that it's going to pop. <laughs> So he also claims that he became the unofficial mascot of the Goodyear blimp hangar, doing odd jobs like sweeping for a dollar or so an hour. Only problem is, Lou stole this whole entire story from his friend and neighbor, Alan Gross. He lived in the actual apartment with the window that had the view of Flushing Airport, while Lou's apartment was on the other side of the building with no view. Gross and Perlman were the only kids in the building and became friends basically because of that, like proximity. Um, but Gross would become obsessed with Perlman, his lies and fraud, and he was one of the first people to recognize that Lou was a charlatan. He's in this documentary too, and oh, he's amazing. You just know that he's like finally Oh, he vindication. First of all, his whole apartment is still decorated with blimp stuff. <laughs> like he is legit a blimp lover. Now, he tells the story, he's like, I'm the one who glimpsed the blimp coming in that day to Flushing Airport in 1964. I'm the one who <laughs> scurried to befriend the Did blimp you men. Say who blimps the blimp? Glimps oh. the blimp. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> blimps the blimp. Blimps. What if I just start using blimps as like Like a, Smurf? Like Smurf. <laughs> he said... He said that he was the one who got the press pass necessary to get the ride. He was the one who snagged the job, sweeping up the hangar. Um, all of this stuff, Lou just took his story and made it his own. In this Vanity Fair article I read, he said at some point, quote, the stories he tells, they're not about Lou. They're about me. He's taken episodes from my life to make his own. He always has. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So... Gross also claims that Perlman would come to the hangar while he was working, but would just sit there and stare. Gross said he told him the staring was, quote, making the blimp guys uncomfortable. <laughs> 
I had to tell him to stop staring to come out and talk a little. Look, it takes a lot to make <laughs> blimp guys uncomfortable. Seriously. And like, Lou were, Pearlman managed it. He somehow did. Or they wouldn't let him hang around. That's really when he started coming out of his shell, you know. Sometimes I feel like the Dr. Frankenstein who created a monster. And this is true because Lou does become someone who makes everyone feel great. <laughs> like, that's his specialty. He makes everyone feel like they're in on something. He's letting them in on a special, like, lifestyle uh, etc. He's a con artist. So all of Lou's origin story, the one he sold to the press, was basically a lie. Making matters worse, Reeny believed Lou could do no wrong and put him on a pedestal from the beginning, unknowingly building an insulated narcissist who thought that consequences were for other people. But one thing that was real was that Lou was incredibly ambitious and fearless when it came to making his dreams happen. But it was almost like he believed his own lies, I think, too. So that's part of it. Now, although Alan and Lewis lost touch during college days, uh, I think Alan was at Syracuse and Lou was at Queens College, Lou was still obsessed with aviation and did a class project in which he created a business plan for a commuter helicopter service. When Alan returned from school, he joined Lou in obsessively making this happen. The basic idea was that rich businessmen could avoid gridlock traffic and congested rush hour public transportation by commuting back and forth to Manhattan via helicopter. Lou immediately began to drum up capital. Uh, he approached basically anyone he could as a potential investor. Is this like Uber for helicopter? I guess. It's kind of like, yeah. I mean... How many helicopters at a time can you have in the air flying back and forth commuting? I have no idea. And how many people per helicopter? I guess there's various sizes. I, I mean, don't... This, this it's seems not, too complicated. It's not very environmental. No. <laughs> um, he even approached... His cousin, Art Garfunkel. No way. (laughs) Yes. No way. Now, the funny thing is I had read this in the book and then in the documentary, all of his friends who knew him, they're like, yeah, he's such a liar. None of us believe (laughs) that his cousin was Art Garfunkel. He said, my cousin Art Garfunkel is coming to my bar bar mitzvah. (laughs) And none of them believed it. And then when they went to the bar mitzvah, they're like, holy shit, Art Garfunkel showed up to the bar mitzvah. So like that was one thing that was true. Art Garfunkel is his first cousin. So (laughs) it's just like (laughs) an unbelievably weird detail. He finally persuaded a small group of Wall Streeters living on Long Island to help him buy a helicopter, which he then leased and flew around New York. Uh, So this this business was called Commuter, Commuter Helicopter Service, Inc. And it was... Not very successful. <laughs> In addition to Alan Gross, another childhood friend, Frankie Vasquez, who was the son of the Mitchell Garden maintenance man, was also involved in this company, and he would stay with Lou for the rest of his life. In his book, Perlman claims that he made his first million by 21, but that's definitely not true. The company, as I said before, was not successful and eventually merged with another company. There was virtually no profit, but what Lou did gain from the endeavor was probably even more valuable. He gained contacts in the aviation business, including Theo Wollenkamper, who owned the blimp company in Germany. In 1978, when Lou heard that Wollenkamper would be visiting the U.S. right around his 50th birthday, Lou mailed him a two-foot-high birthday card covered with glitter, along with an invitation to dinner in New York. Wollenkamper accepted, and Lou was, like, shocked. Perlman picked him up at the airport in a helicopter, and they flew to Queens. The dinner was at Lou's parents' apartment. (laughs) 
Flushing, Queens. And the meal was cooked by Rini, his mom. <gasps> what did she make? I, I honestly couldn't find, but I have no idea. But they're Jewish, so maybe it was a good fucking brisket or something. <laughs> um, Woolen Kemper was charmed by this. So charmed, in fact, that he invited Perlman and Frankie Vasquez to train at his facility in Germany so they could learn all about blimp building. Now, in 1978, later that year, Wollenkemper backed Lou launching Transcontinental Airlines. The bulk of their business was basically banks sending checks across the country to speed up the process, like something that would never exist today. Within a year, more investors came on board, on board allowing Lou to buy his own planes instead of just relying on Wollenkemper's loaners. Um, so he still had this dream, though, of owning a blimp, even though the airline business was booming. Lou still couldn't afford the $1.2 million it would take to buy a blimp. According to Alan Gross, who was once again working with Lou as his public relations manager, Perlman bought a used logging balloon from a California man. Now, obviously, this is not something that's safe for traveling. It's like it's something it's not for that. So Lou hired a New Jersey aluminum contractor to build a frame for the logging balloon and give it a more traditional blimp like appearance. Making things even more ominous, this blimp or faux blimp was assembled at the naval base in Lakehurst, New Jersey, the same one where the Hindenburg crashed in flames in 1937. <laughs> now, I got to ask, did Lou at this point think that blimp travel was the future? Well, he did think it was the future, Rachel, but not for travel, but for advertising and promotion. So that's what we're going to get into right now. Like he, he just loved blimps. I have no idea why. I mean, we'll never understand it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now, no one who built this blimp actually ever thought it would fly. They were like, this is impossible. It's not made to carry anything heavy, uh, even if we sort of jerry-rigged it or whatever, right. it's not going to work. But Lou believed, and in 1980, he founded Airship Enterprises Limited, and after making the rounds of potential corporate sponsors, he eventually persuaded three brothers from Israel who wanted to promote their new company, Jordash G. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is about to get unbelievably 80s. So <laughs> this was kind of a disaster from the start. The brothers wanted to paint the blimp gold with maroon lettering spelling out their brand name, Jordache Jeans, on the side of the blimp. Now, Gross, Al Gross, our favorite character in this saga so far, he was just outraged because the paint sort of turned brown. The gold paint would turn brown after several days in the sun. And he, according to Gross, it looked like a giant turd. But the brothers were adamant that this thing had to be gold. They actually spent $50,000 on gold paint to paint. It was like actual gold paint. What? That's how much they spent to paint this fucking blimp. Now, their idea was that the blimp would land in Central Park where they were having a huge party that had press. The blimp would land and fashion models would exit the blimp decked out in designer jeans, an unforgettable event that would give them a lot of publicity. So they were flying people in this blimp. Yes. This sounds dangerous. Yes. It ended up being um, unforgettable, but just not in the way that they planned. (laughs) On its inaugural flight on October 8th, 1980, the Jordache blimp left New Jersey and made it less than a mile before losing altitude and forcing the pilot to crash land in a garbage dump. (laughs) No one was hurt, and it did get Jordache a lot of publicity. In the documentary, they have like news stories from the time about this event, and it was just like on every local news channel, like about this Jordache blimp 
um, fucking, and they have pictures of it too. So this crash actually made national headlines. Perlman blamed the weight of the gold paint, um, but the airship community, that's blimp community to you guys. <laughs> they were talking about the obvious lack of safety protocols and the fact that this thing should never have uh, flown to begin with. Of course, Gross has an opinion on it. He said Lou never intended to fly that blimp. Um, he said that the airship hadn't flown anywhere near the number of practice runs required under federal law because I think Lou knew it wouldn't fucking pass anything, so he had to save it for the day of. He could have been arrested if he had left that base on any other day. Now, making things more suspicious, Lou had insured the blimp at the inflated price of a real blimp, never adjusting it for the cheaper logging balloon version. Perlman and his insurer ended up in court, and he was eventually awarded $2.5 million for the (gasps) the blimp. That blimp cost $10,000 to buy and then whatever else. like It was at best $200,000. Oh, my God. Is this his first insurance scam? Like, yes. Was he intentionally doing this? It seems that way. Now, by 1982, Lou claimed between his blimp business, the original commuter uh, helicopter business, and the transcontinental air, like for the banking back and forth across the country, he had made $400 million. He moved out of his parents' apartment into a penthouse apartment in Queens and had offices on Fifth Avenue. Um, out on the cold, though, childhood friend Alan Gross He was causing Lou too much trouble, and Lou basically kicked him out. He worked for Lou for all those years and basically left with nothing but an $11,000 settlement from Lou. So if Lou made $400 million, that's a bullshit fucking settlement. Yeah. I don't think Lou made $400 million. No. No. (laughs) But probably more than $11,000. So throughout the 80s, Lou continued getting investors for his little endeavors, um, he put more money in transcontinental air. He promised his investors a 20% return on their investments. And he also shared with them um, some information about an IPO he was going to have for his new blimp company called Airship International. He lived so large that people eagerly handed over their entire life savings for the investment opportunities that he was offering. He managed to ma- raise more money with an IPO on that international airship international raising $3 million by selling shares at artificially high prices. He also got insurance money from three more blimp crashes that may have also been fraudulent since he didn't even own the blimps. He was leasing them from Molencraft. Like, so he took out insurance policies on these blimps that he didn't even own. And then when they would crash, he would collect as if he was the owner uh, of them. Uh, As with many financial criminals, they seem to get away with a lot of shit before they get busted for whatever reason. Uh, nothing ever checks out, but no one's fucking checking. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm the 
queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money, and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. So... Lou's beloved mother dies on the operating table in 1988, which devastates him and leads to a lifelong fear of surgery. He saw little reason to stay in New York at that point, so in 1991, Lou and his company, Transcontinental Airlines, relocated to Orlando, Florida. Childhood friend Frankie Vasquez moved with him, and they hoped for a fresh start in sunny Florida. But wherever you go, there you are. Is that like, that's like an old saying, right? Yeah. (laughs) So Perlman was still pretty shady in Florida. I mean, why not? You're in fucking Florida. (laughs) He needed to raise more money shortly after arriving there and turned to a brokerage who was known to play loose with the rules to help him raise $17 million. That firm is eventually hit with a fine for buying airship stock to inflate the price when clients had requested orders for other stocks. So they would just blatantly ignore their client's request. And they got in big trouble for it. Now, several of those brokers were banned from working in the, the business, and Lou hired them to be his personal finance guys. <laughs> Julian Bencher, who was one of Lou's biggest investors, started becoming unsure about the way Lou was running his business, especially when he saw how Lou spent money. Lou loved picking up every tab, and these were huge tabs because he would go all out. So he just wanted to be like, I'm. He's the big man on campus. Absolutely. And a lot of his friends are like, that's all Lou wanted. He was like a pudgy kid. Everyone was mean to him. And it was definitely a vibe of one day I'm going to be rich and then you're all going to want to be my friend (laughs) type thing. It's so like tragic. Yeah. So he would also just like hire private jets for people, just like unbridled spending on himself and others. At this point, his weight also began to balloon. He was obsessed with See, I have to include this detail for Rachel because I know she's going to ask. He was obsessed with Olive Garden's all-you-can-eat buffet. (gasps) That was his guilty. That was that was his that was his fix. That was his Achilles heel. Yes, was the Olive Garden all-you-can-eat buffet. Loved the Olive Garden all-you-can-eat buffet, (laughs) (laughs) and got up to three hundred and fifty pounds. Now I've been to Orlando. Have you? No, I've never even been to Florida. Oh, you haven't? No. Oh, Orlando is like chain restaurant central like they have every chain restaurant there it's like crazy so yeah 
I can picture it. Um, the $17 million he had raised when he got there was quickly dwindling, so Lou raised more money from private investors, including a man named Dr. Joseph Chow, who lived in Chicago. Chow come, came to consider Perlman the son he never had. They were very close, and he would eventually lend Perlman up to $14 million. <gasps> so... At first, Perlman's new investors were receiving Airship International stock, and that is in quotation marks. So that was the blimp company that was actually making money through their promotional blimp blimping. Like they had clients like McDonald's and SeaWorld. So this kind of promotional blimp stuff. So he was, he did actually have a legit blimp company? Yes. Now, then he began selling small lots of trans con. Transcontinental Airlines stock, which paid an annual dividend of about 10%. At some point in the early 90s, Perlman began offering investors a new option, a chance to participate in Transcon Air's federally insured employee stock ownership plan that he called an Employee Investment Savings Account, or an EISA. Now, this was something that paid an annual return of about 8%, and according to Lou Perlman, was guaranteed by the FDIC, the um, AIG Insurance Company, and Lloyds of London. He also sold them on this plan as something he only normally offered to friends and family, but he was letting them get on a deal that they could never normally get in on. In time, Perlman began selling these EISA investments through a series of small brokerage houses in Florida, and many of his buyers were retirees who lived in Florida. Florida and were retiring. There was just one problem. None of those investments Pearl was selling was actually guaranteed by the FDIC. Did you call him Pearl? Pearl. <laughs> Pearl. Pearlman. I'm sorry. Just were, start over. Uh, none of these investments Pearlman was selling were actually guaranteed by the FDIC, the AIG, or Lords of London. It was all a lie. For the most part, investors simply took Pearlman for his word. When someone did ask, he provided proof, but they were all forgeries. The bigger lie, though, was even more outrageous. There's no such thing as an EISA account. There is a legitimate federally insured account called an ERISA, an Employee Retirement Investment Savings Account. But Perlman's was completely fictitious. And he basically capitalized on the confusion between the two names to get people to buy it. Sweetheart, <laughs> are you interested in buying my EIEIO account? I know, it's like so crazy. This was a very successful con in his park because people just bought it hook, line, and sinker. Between the early 90s and 2006, he took in more than $300 million in sales by selling these EISA accounts. Now, this is obviously a straight-up Ponzi scheme. What he would do would be pay old investors with money from new ones. I mean, we know how it works. They don't go well. Lending him even more credibility during the 90s was that Lou, at some point, enters the music business and through sheer will and luck becomes really successful and famous. So surely a man of his stature would not con senior citizens, would he? (laughs) Like... In this documentary, they talk to a lot of victims that he conned, and they're literally like, he was like, you own part of the Backstreet Boys now, like that kind of stuff. And they were like, you can meet the Backstreet Boys. They would get tickets to concerts. So he really used his these bands to con people, and some of the artists in the documentary were like, I feel fucking horrible <laughs> that I'm partially like responsible for him being able to oh. con people. Yeah, pretty bad. So... 
Perlman began to think about entering the music business during the late 1980s when one of his charter planes flew the new kids on the block to several concerts. It was during one of these flights that he learned from one of the band's managers that the new kids had grossed $100 million that year, and he wanted in. In early 1992, he placed an advertisement in the Orlando, Orlando Sentinel announcing auditions to be, for a band that was going to be composed of teenage boys. The first person to reply was Denise McLean, who had a son named AJ, who was an aspiring singer. He auditioned for Perlman in his living room and became the first member of the band. At some point, he puts out another ad uh, to get more teenage boys to come in and audition. And in January of 1993, he has a really huge casting call where hundreds of young performers dance and sing for him in his blimp hangar in Kissimmee, which is south of Orlando. At that point, he gets four more young men, Brian Luttrell, Nick Carter, Kevin Richardson, and Howie D. D Howie Durrell. Howie Durrell. So he basically has his group. He comes up with the name The Backstreet Boys, which is after Orlando's Backstreet Flea Market. The group starts... Uh, working right away. They have their first show at SeaWorld in May of 1993, and they're soon out on the road performing at amusement parks and malls. Now, he brings in a pair of professional managers, Johnny and Donnie, Donna Wright, who work for New Kids on the Block. Johnny Wright. You know Johnny Wright. How? Okay. <laughs> this is an insane scam. <laughs> yes. Just because he, prior to this, has no musical inclination, no, no experience with music. And he manages to create two of the biggest bands ever. Ever. Yeah. So within a year, the Backstreet Boys have a deal with Jive Records. After US radio stations basically ignore their first single, the band begins touring in Europe, where its first album, which is released in 1995, became a smash hit. Through it all, he is their father figure. He is with them all the time. They even call him Big Papa. <laughs> Okay, let me just get this straight, because I can't, the guy literally all he did was put an ad in the newspaper. Yes. And 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 the people, like I know like, like parents of young kids who want to be stars or whatever, sometimes you can be gullible, whatever. This turned out to be like taking a chance on some weird guy named Lou Pearlman. It right. turns into this, this is a one in a million yeah, that happens. Like yeah. it actually turns into a success. What I can't wrap my head around is how he managed to. It's unbelievable. Where did his connections come from? He literally did have money, and that's basically what he did. Now you have to remember at this time, Orlando and like there's the Disney, the new Disney Channel or yes. whatever Mickey Mouse Mickey Club. Mouse Club. Uh, there's a lot of talent or in Orlando, yes, because they're all working at these theme parks, yes. So there's a lot of talent there, uh, just kind of flocking there. So, I mean, it is crazy. Uh, the other thing is, so, so he must have had, he had to have hired people to write songs for them, well, right? Well, yes. He sinks $3 million into Backstreet Boys before seeing a, a penny of profit. Of his he, own money. He ba Yeah. He basically, well, I mean, it's the well, money okay, of those yeah. people. <laughs> so he basically puts together a boy band boot camp, hires the best people. As I mentioned, the manager, Johnny Wright, is a well-known music figure. You know what I mean? He just like gets him. Uh, he really is passionate about this. Like for all his faults, like I do believe like he was really into this particular endeavor. Even before the band hit it big, he began planning more groups. The first was NSYNC, which we all know has Justin Timberlake, JC uh, Chazay, um, and the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> I can I can do it. Lance Bass, Lance Bass, Chris Kirkpatrick. Ooh, good. 
Who's the other Joey one? Fatone. Oh, Joey Fatone. <laughs> uh, so he, you know, all these groups start touring uh, Europe in 1995. He has other groups, including Take Five. Um, I mentioned earlier LFO and an all-girl group named Innocence. Now that's where Britney Spears, she was in that band initially. She was? Yes, she was in Innocence and then left to do a solo career before, I mean, they never broke, but (laughs) so she ended up obviously doing very well. So he even built a state-of-the-art studio with all of that investor money he had rolling in. At that point, almost all of Perlman's ventures became subsidiaries of Con Air, so he had the Backstreet Boys. He bought Chippendales. So he bought that franchise in 1996. He had Transcon Records, Transcon Studios, Transcon Foods, which Rachel included a string of TCBY yogurt, yogurt oh, franchises. Oh, 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 TCBY. <laughs> he owned TCBYs. And a small chain of, and I have this direct quote from the Vanity Fair article because I love the way he wrote it, a small chain of deli cum pizzerias. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Like, I know he didn't mean it dirty, but I was like, come pizza. <laughs> Wait, Deli come. Come pizzerias. That's your. <laughs> this is a very serious Vanity Fair article. That's, but I, that's I was our like, restaurant. I was like, record scratch. And this this place was called NYPD Pizza. <laughs> Just a horrible name. No. <laughs> Wait. Wait. <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah, I don't. I don't think what, that one took was off. Was it not in New York? Was it like in? They Florida? were literally coming on the pizza. <laughs> Wait, the cops were coming on the pizza. Yeah, I NYPD don't know. Pizza. Really weird. I mean, I guess it's hard to open a chain without. You have to come up with a new gimmick. I just don't know if Copcom is the right one. <laughs> Anyway, Perlman was regularly uh, mailing out these letters to Transcon Air shareholders like, look what we're buying. (laughs) Look at all of our investments. Look how great everything is doing. Now, around this time, um, the guy I mentioned earlier, Julian, who had talked about his Olive Garden (laughs) obsession, had become more and more suspicious. He's one of Lou's biggest investors and like one of the only sort of legitimate um, investors, not like just a random person trying to earn more money in retirement. He started pulling out of this business. Um, because he was getting suspicious. And then all of a sudden, his dividends stopped coming through. His suspicion was further heightened when that started happening. He actually went to Germany to confront Transcon Air co-owner Wollenkemper, who Perlman blamed for the dividend problem. As Bencher remembers their meeting, he said, Wollenkemper said, what are you talking about? I said, Transcontinental Airlines. He said, what's Transcontinental Airlines got <gasps> to do with me? You own it. You own 82% of it. He started laughing. Transcon Air? 49 airplanes, he said. I have planes, but not with Transcon Air, Julian. This has nothing to do with me. I went cold inside. Everything I had believed for eight years was a lie. I didn't know what to do. There was no Transcontinental Airlines. That was a made-up business? It's a made-up business. Bencher came to find out that Perlman only owned three planes and Transcon Airline only existed on paper. He struck a settlement agreement with Pearl in which Perlman in which he promised not to publicly out him. Wow. So that got pushed away because he basically got some sort of settlement and was like, okay, I'm good. Take care of everybody else. <laughs> like us. Yeah. There was no airline. He acted like he had an airline. One of the funny stories, or not funny, but like that guy, Al Gross, he says that he had like a 747 model airplane Mm -hmm. and Lou Perlman had it customized to say Transcontinental Airlines. And he actually went to LaGuardia Airport, (laughs) held held the airplane (laughs) up to look like it was taking off. (laughs) 
And he said that there's a picture he has where you can see Lou's fingers because they didn't get edited. I mean, this is before cell phones. So they had to take these pictures and he held it just so that it looks like this airline is flying in the air. Like people thought he had a fucking airline and he owned three airplanes basically. They never like, oh man. Yeah. And even the band members like in this documentary were like, we were kind of wondering why we always wore flying Delta (laughs) when he owned an airline. (laughs) Right. You know, and it was like, oh yeah. It's like one of those things where like, yeah, that never made sense actually. Now, Lou was too invested in his new boy band endeavor to really care about anything else. By 1997, he would become pop music's most famous Svengali, but other suspicions began to swirl about Lou. Now, as you mentioned, Rachel, it's quite unusual for a person to come from the blimp industry and become a huge success in the music industry out of basically nowhere. Like, just basically, like, that's... There was no (laughs) in-between phases for Lou. Uh, insiders began raising questions about Perlman's motivations almost from the moment the Backstreet Boys were formed. Well, I remember there were some suspicions about, was he predatorial? Well, you're about to get an earful. Oh. (laughs) The group's initial co-manager was a singer named Phoenix Stone. This person said, basically, this was an excuse for Lou to hang around with five good-looking boys. He was along for the ride. What he liked to do was take boys out to dinner. Although Pearl... Uh, was never openly gay, and he he had kind of dated a few women throughout his life. He was pretty much the lifelong bachelor type. Like, no one really knew what his deal was uh, in public. He did have one long-term girlfriend, but she was basically a live-in nurse that he began dating, and they never shared a room. And she was kind of there to help Lloyd, I'm sorry, Lou avoid hospitalization because he was so scared of having a surgery after his mom had died. Oh. So that whole relationship was kind of like, didn't really seem like romantic to anybody, but it was his girlfriend uh, for a while. Now, because he was a constant companion to the young men and boys he repped, members of the groups and their families frequently gossiped about Lou. According to Denise McLean, who was AJ's mother, as a mother, you kind of put two and two together. Yet there was always that fine line where you sat back and went, okay, is this a guy who always wanted to be a father or an uncle? Is this all innocent or is it more? I kind of thought that there might have been some strange things going on, but you know, you just didn't know. There was no hard evidence of anything and success sort of buried the fears of a lot of these people because they all wanted to see the good aspects of things. In June of 1997, the Backstreet Boys finally had their first U.S. hit, Quit Playing Games With My Heart. Overnight, the band became an international sensation. Reporters were rushing to profile Perlman as well as this unlikely, um, as we said earlier, a Svengali, a new era of boy bands. The success of Backstreet Boys and later NSYNC created a huge music scene in Orlando, and that created even more fresh-faced kids coming to Orlando to, to like, get a little like time with Lou Perlman, and hopefully he could make them a star. In 1998, the first real allegations of inappropriate behavior involving Perlman appear to have surfaced. This incident centered on the youngest of the Backstreet Boys, Nick Carter, who in 1997 had turned 17. Even for those closest to the group, what happened still remains unclear. According to Denise McLean, my son did say something about the fact that Nick had been uncomfortable staying at his house. For a while, Nick loved going over to Lou's house. All of a sudden, it appeared there was a flip at some point. Then we heard from the Carter camp that there was some kind of inappropriate behavior. It was just odd. I can just say there was odd events that took place. 
Several say that Jane Carter, Nick's mom, termed Perlman a sexual predator. Phoenix Stone says he discussed the matter with Nick and his mother. According to him, with Nick, I got to tell you, this was not something Nick was comfortable talking about. What happened? Well, I just think that he finally, you know, Lou was definitely inappropriate with him and he just felt that he didn't want anything to do with that anymore. There was a big blow up at that point from what Jane says. Yes, there was a big blow up and they confronted him. In this interview with Vanity Fair, I mean, I'm sorry, in the article with Vanity Fair that I read, they had an interview with Jane Carter and she basically said that certain things happened and it almost destroyed our family. She said that she tried to warn everyone, including all the mothers, and tried to expose him for what he was years ago. She claimed, she said to the writer of this article, I hope you expose him because the financial scandal is the least of his injustices. She said that she wouldn't discuss it further, though, because she didn't want to jeopardize her relationship with Nick. I can't say anything more. These children are fearful, and they want to go on with their careers. Wow. Now, in the documentary, his biggest defender is Aaron Carter. Like, Aaron Carter is almost in tears at some point and wants to, like, stop the cameras. He's so upset about any accusation against Lou Pearlman. He's a Lou Pearlman stan. Yeah. Even- it was like wild. I mean, we're, we'll definitely do a Carter episode at some point. Yes, we Because this to. family, boy, did there's you, some stuff going on here. Did you watch House of Carters? No, I didn't watch House of Desi, Carters. House of <laughs> but Car- I want to now. House of Carters was insane. Yeah. I mean, I felt bad seeing Aaron because he's definitely dealing with some shit we should do we should we will we've talked about this before about doing a boy band because i want to talk about aj mclean too there's a lot there's a lot of boy band stories we could talk about so i'm just gonna stick with lou perlman right now but yeah i definitely highly recommend this documentary so another of the accusations comes from tim christopher who was in the band take five And he started that band at the age of 13. He talks about things like one time there was a sleepover when he and another boy were dozing off. Pearlman appeared at the foot of their bed only wearing a towel. And according to Tim, Pearlman performed a swan dive onto the bed and began wrestling with the boys and the towel came off. (gasps) So we were like, oh, Lou, that's so gross. But what did we know? We were just 13. Some other incidents that he spoke about was that Pearl would, uh, I'm sorry, Pearlman. My God, why do I keep doing that? I just want to call him Pearl. (laughs) (laughs) That he would often invite them over to play pool. And when he would meet them at the door, he'd be naked explaining he just got out of the shower. Stop it. Like, that is never an excuse. No, no. He also said that Perlman would sometimes have, he had like a ton of security camera cameras around his property, including in the tanning bedroom that he let girls of innocence use. Now he would show them these girls naked getting into the tanning bed. Wait. The boys. He would show the yes, boys? Yes, he would show the boys naked images on camera of the Innocence girls using the tanning bed or sunbathing <gasps> topless. Yeah, really creepy shit. This guy also said that one time he invited the band over to watch Star Wars in his viewing room. And at some point, the film switched off and was replaced with a pornographic movie. We all just thought it was funny. We were kids, so we were like, great. But that's also really fucking creepy. No one ever complained, said Tim's mother, Stephanie. Most of the stuff we learned about after the group broke up in 2001, Lou played the game of trying to alienate the parents. Every time he dropped the boys off, it was like, don't tell the parents anything. They pretty much had a pact with him and they kept it. Only later did Marilee Goodall, who had a son, two sons in take five, learn that Perlman had taken one to a strip joint. 
She said, did Lou rape my boys? No, he didn't. But he put them and a lot of others in inappropriate situations. I know that. To me, the man is just a sexual predator. Of course, others say nothing happened, but it's like definitely a thing of like, hey, we heard these stories, but nothing happened to me. Like, obviously, that doesn't mean anything. It just didn't happen to you. But they just can't say one way or the other. Um, Most of the people who do admit to stuff say that they think people are afraid that that will ruin their careers. Not because Lou has any power, obviously, but just they don't want it to be a thing. Right. Uh, Which is understandable because people are assholes. Now, but the person who gives the most information is a former assistant named Steve Mooney. He was an aspiring singer. Lou met him when he was 20 years old. He's a flowing blonde hair, hunky type of guy who Perlman had an aide approach at an Orlando mall where Steve was working at an Abercrombie (laughs) Fitch store. Wow. This aide went up to Steve Mooney and said, the big man wants to see you. Mooney then goes to Perlman and auditions with a Michael Jackson song, but Perlman offers him a job as a personal assistant. He explains to Mooney that that's how JC uh, of NSYNC got started, by being my assistant. That's not true. That's not true. No, it's not true at all. Now, he would sort of hold out over Mooney's head all of this, like, especially like, I'll let you be in O-Town. That was his big thing at some point. Now, O-Town, I'll get to a little bit later, but that was his big thing. Like, hey, just keep doing this working for me. Like, you might have a spot in O-Town. It's definitely going to happen. So just kind of like fucking sick, sick kind of manipulative stuff like that. Like, next year, you'll be a millionaire. Like, sure, you're my assistant now. Assistant now. Now, Mooney immediately noticed that Perlman enjoyed hugging him, rubbing his shoulders, and squeezing his arm with odd pep talks that included things like he would say, do you trust me? Of course I trust you, Lou. He always said, I want to break you down then build you up so we can be a team together. Then he would say things like, your aura is off and begin rubbing my back. I was like, whoa. And he's going, it's okay. We've got to get your aura aligned. At some point, while he's like rubbing his muscles, he would say, as soon as the elevator doors close... Oh, sorry. This guy said, as soon as the elevator doors would close, he would immediately start grabbing you and rubbing your abs. The first first few times I was like, whatever, but it gets to be too much. It's like you have a creepy friend who's always touching you. (laughs) That's not a friend. Now, Steve takes these concerns to his dad who goes to dinner with Steve and Lou. And basically the dad is like, seems like fine like he's rubbing the kid's leg during the dinner how old is this kid again he's 20 so i mean not a kid sorry he's 20 but still like this is pretty inappropriate behavior well he's technically his employer yeah it's inappropriate yeah so he said it's kind of like with anyone you start talking about money and fame and people just like get their blinders on and don't really see what was going on according to him he also said that there was a young man that at some point he had a heart-to-heart talk with um it was a singer and a second tier Perlman band, he said to this guy, does he ever grope you? And this guy said, yeah, all the time. Lou once grabbed him down there. I said, well, what do you do about that? He said, look, if the guy wants to massage me and I'm getting a million dollars for it, you just go along. It's the price you got to pay. Now, on several several occasions in the late 1990s, Phoenix Stone said that he felt obligated to confront Perlman over his behavior. He said that we were trying to build a company, build a brand, a worldwide brand. 
And like, he didn't want Lou to have this reputation as a predator. So I would have conversations with him. I was worried about the underage kids. He never admitted to being gay or anything. I said, look, I know exactly what time it is with you. I don't care whether you're gay or not. This is a business and you can't do this with kids. Like, (laughs) and like, you know what I mean? And they can't be underage. He just said, kind of laughed and said, I got it all covered. I got it all covered. This was at the height of his fame though. I see, I think he was feeling really powerful and Mm -hmm. untouchable. Um, so Steve Mooney said that he saw firsthand the price that many of these young men were paying by having this connection with Lou Pearlman. But at some point, he just felt like he didn't want to intrude. Pearlman had this bedroom behind a pair of double doors. He would see young male singers slip in late at night and then leave tucking in their shirts with a sheepish <gasps> look on their face at the end. He kind of got the feeling that as long as they were over 18, there wasn't much he could do about it at right. that point. So that was pretty much it. He said matters came to a head for him in, with, with Lou in 2000 when the final stages of O-Town selection, selection process were happening. <laughs> Did you watch Make the Band? Making the Band? Uh, part, some episodes. Yeah, I love that show. So if you don't know, it's a reality show, basically like... um I don't know. They, it was like auditions and a process where at the end they had a boy band. Or uh, a girl band. Or, or a girl band. But this case, it was a boy band. And O-Town was like the first one. O-Town was the first season. So I, th- I think what happens is Mooney at this point is realizing that he's never going to be in O-Town like Lou had been promising him. And uh, Phoenix Stone, who was c- like a consultant on O-Town or making the band, said that he and Perlman were home late at night discussing Mooney's future when Perlman telephoned Mooney explaining he needed someone to take out the garbage. Stone says it was really clear to him what was going on. I stopped it right there and said that, like, Lou, you can't call Steve to come over to take out the garbage. Um, If it's about the garbage, there's plenty of people who can take out your garbage. If it's not, we'll leave him alone. (laughs) Because he sensed that something was going on there. Stone left believing that the matter had been resolved, but Mooney says there was a second phone call after Stone left, and he drove to the mansion at 2 a.m., found Perlman in his office in a white terry cloth cloth bathrobe. They had a long argument, and at the end, Mooney said that um, he said to Perlman, what do I have to do to get in this band? At that point, Mooney said Perlman smiled. He said, I'll never forget this as long as I live. He leaned back in his chair in his white terry cloth robe, white underwear, spread his legs, and then he said, and these were his exact words, you're a smart boy, figure it out. Ew. Mooney said he left the house without further incident, and he knew that his days with Perlman were numbered. Like, he was pretty much knew he was out at that point, and he was. Uh, He actually tried to... um, I guess, find some evidence on Perlman. At some point before he was officially out, he went to his office and found photos that he had been keeping in one of his files and took pictures of them. One of them was one of the aides that um, Perlman had posing as a Chippendales dancer. One was a photo of Perlman and one of the Backstreet Boys on a ski vacation alone. And another was a photo of a young singer naked in Perlman's sauna with his hands covering his genitals. So he took copies of all of these and showed them to Lou and said, listen, all you got to do is keep your mouth shut and you're in this company for life. That's what Lou said to him. That phono, I'd burn it. Um, But eventually these two just kind of like just parted ways and like let it be at that point. Um, Yeah. So just like tons of allegations along those lines where it seems clear to me that this guy was for sure creepy 
even if he didn't do anything technically illegal, I don't know. But I think, how would it not be? Do you know what I mean? Like, he probably had to have done something illegal here, right? Look, this guy just, he's shady. He's shady. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Was he responsible for the song Liquid Dreams? (laughs) (laughs) Do you know that song? Wait, which which album is that on? This is O-Town. Oh, then... I mean, if it's on their first album, yes, it's on their first. Look, okay, that's wait, the I only. Ra- that is the only O Town song I know, and that song was like number one on TRL for like six weeks or whatever. <laughs> wait, I have a vague memory Dude, of this. This song is called Liquid Dreams, and even as a fourteen-year-old, I'm like, this is gross. Oh my god! Now why I need to hear that. Song. Why is there a song about a nighttime jizz? That is disgusting. I have a vague memory, but I also remember their song where it was like about heaven or all or nothing at all or something like some ballad. Oh, think that must have been their first single. That was like their big You're first right. hit because right. Ashley um, Parker, Parker Angel. Angel was like the stud <laughs> yes. and everyone was like madly in love with him yeah. on that show. That show was good, I have to say, but I do remember watching it and being like, this guy is disgusting. Now we're a little ahead of ourselves because I'm going to get into some stuff that happens before O-Town. But I guess it's sort of simultaneously. Because when I was watching Making of the Band, I had no idea. Because he had, by this point, he's going to get sued right now by the Backstreet Boys. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Okay, so it's... 1999, I think. The Backstreet Boys are obviously the biggest band in the world. They're selling millions of records. They're touring worldwide. They have screaming fans. They're Total Request Live staples. There's only one problem. They're earning literally no money. There's an unbelievable scene in this documentary where Lou Pearlman, after like years of touring and being successful selling millions of records, he takes them all to Lowry's Prime Rib. (laughs) (laughs) And he makes this big presentational thing where they're all sitting around this table with an envelope with their their first big check in it. <gasps> and so Lance Bass is like telling the story. First of all, I got hungry because we always want to go to Lowry's I Prime know. Rib. So one day we will. They open up the check and Lou is like, here's your first big check. And they think they're going to get like hundreds of thousands of dollars at the minimum. Uh, they open up the check is for $10,000. No. Yes. In 99? Yes. Wait a minute. Yes. Yes. Th- this was, they were, they were literally the biggest band in the world. Rachel, in, <laughs> they received 300,000 
dollars total during their time with Lou Pearlman, which equals about twelve thousand dollars per member per year. <gasps> that's how little much. That's how little money they, they were getting. And in the documentary, it explains. First of all, this is like the worst contract in the history of music, and everything was recoupables. So. He rented a house for them. He bought all these fancy meals, but they had no idea that they were actually paying for it all. So he would take all of that money out of the profits and they would, that's like where it all went. I mean, it was also being stolen by him. He also, in the contract, made himself the sixth member. So he got one sixth of everything as if he was a member of the band. So these guys are like working 18 hour days sometimes on tour. Yeah, And Lance was like, in the documentary, he's like, my heart sunk. And like the mother of Lance, she was just like, I looked around the table and saw these boys' faces thinking they had this huge payday. And it was like, you know, $10,000 is obviously not nothing, but for, for what they were earning, it's an insane amount of money. I mean, sold out stadiums. Yes. So Brian Luttrell is like, this is fucked up. He gets an attorney. He tells the other Backstreet Boys, I'm fucking suing. So he gets these attorneys to kind of do like an investigation into the finances. They discover what I mentioned, that they were only paid $12,000 per year, like the whole time they were with him. He sues. And in May of 1998, sorry, I had the date wrong. It wasn't 99, it was 98. His bandmates joined the litigation. During the discovery, they learned that among other things, that I mentioned before, he was being paid as a sixth member of the band. Um, he was basically recouping all of his initial $3 million, like just like everything. These guys were just paying for every, his whole lifestyle basically. So he would buy the Backstreet Boys a house to live in and, and say, but he would take it from their money. But yes. He would say like, oh, I'm such a great manager. Yes. So he would act like he was a big spender, but he was actually recouping all that money uh, from them. According to Kevin Richardson in a Rolling Stone article from 2000, he totally deceived me. It was all, we're a family, we're family. And then you find out it's all about money, it's all about money, it's all about money. Pearlman and the band reached a settlement and details of that were never disclosed, but basically the band got cash and its freedom. He retained a portion of the band's future revenues, but they released their first album, Free of Pearlman, in 1999. Millennium, that's their big album. I want it that way. <laughs> I, I want it that way. Larger than life. Yeah. So that was their first album. Now, once their the, first album. I'm sorry, without Lou without Pearlman. Lou. Now, and it was their biggest album, too. Yeah. In the wake of that lawsuit, the other bands were like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe we should look into this. What's going on with Big Papa? One by one, they all sued or disbanded, despite. Their success in Europe, Take Five, broke up in 2001. LFO, who had top 10 singles, did the same. But the biggest loss for Pearlman was by far NSYNC, whose members sued, settled, and broke all ties with Pearlman. In 1999, they memorialized their struggles with their platinum-selling album, No Strings Attached. And Justin Timberlake said that the band felt like it had been financially <laughs> raped by a Svengali. Okay, Justin, <laughs> calm down. <laughs> But Lou was certain his entrepreneurial savvy was what created these successful bands and that he could do it again. He had to do this because he had to pay his investors their dividends in this fucking Ponzi scheme. Now, we mentioned earlier he had the show um, Making the Band, where we saw the creation of the band O-Town, the one that Steve Moody wanted to be in. But the boy band craze was dying down at this point. Like, it just was not... 
what it was. Look, it had a very short shelf life. Yes. He also signed a slew of new artists, but none other than Nick Carter's brother, Aaron, who was a solo artist, had any real success. I guess Nick Aaron Carter had a little bit of success. Remember when he was dating all the teen stars? Yes. They were, they, <laughs> they, there was a huge squabble over With it. Lindsay Lohan and Hillary Duff. Oh my God. Yeah. So he was like a real hottie for a while. He was a bad boy. Yeah. He also tried to break into Hollywood, developing a script called Longshot, which was written by Tony DiCamillis, one of those band stockbrokers that I mentioned <laughs> earlier. Okay. Needless to say, this movie was a huge bomb. It cost $21 million and brought in $2 million. In 2002, he acquired a talent scouting bureau known as Options Talent. The problem is he acquired a company that was already under criminal investigation for conning people in their desire to have a career in acting modeling, like a classic. Like Aaron Carter did? No. uh, Yeah, He's trying to get all this stuff. No, this is not Aaron. Lou is doing this stuff. <laughs> okay. Now, by 2004, he had yet to find anything to replace the lost income from losing the NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys, yet hundreds of his investors still needed to have those dividends. So in time, he faced the squeeze that every Ponzi scheme confronts. Where do I get new cash to pay my old investors? He began taking out bank loans. In the next three years, in 13 separate loan packages, he pledged every asset he he owned in return for cash, receiving about $156 million. Now, this is mind-boggling because he, he really had no assets, and these banks were not investigating him and just giving him this much money based on, like, nothing. Like, it's crazy to me that... Uh, I mean, it's so infuriating how certain people can't get anything like $10,000 to survive and this they're throwing 156 millions at this fucking con artist like Jesus it's just outrageous now his biggest asset for these banks was Transcon Air which didn't fucking exist <laughs> like how little due diligence did these banks do oh. so Basically, all of his financial statements, tax returns, everything was forgeries and lies. Um, Obviously, these should have been very easy to discern. All it would have taken was a single phone call to Harry Milner, the attorney who signed his returns, but... Milner would have never come to the phone because he didn't, ex- he was dead. What? <laughs> he was a dead man. Oh. So he was forging a dead man's name on all of these um, returns and stuff like that to lend them some legitimacy. It is really stunning that banks just handed this guy $156 million. Like, and that's not just. <laughs> and then there's people out here who can't get a loan for a house. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unreal. Yes. So. For Perlman, the beginning of the end really started happening in mid-2004 when 72-year-old Joseph Chow succumbed to pancreatic cancer. Now, if you remember, this was his most devoted investor who gave him over $14 million throughout their years together. His family, however, hated Perlman. They were sure he was a con man and they finally had a chance to do something about it. According to Chow's daughter, Jennifer, from the very beginning, my mom was very skeptical skeptical of Lou Perlman. She didn't trust him. My parents argued about it quite a bit. She had me talk to my father a number of times to see if we could get some of our money out or slow it down, but my father was very defensive. He just had so much confidence in Lou and everything he told him. He was always promising to expand into TV, movies, record 
uh, recording studios, the charter airline business. He was always promising there would be more, an IPO. When Joseph Chow died, his family had an uncle approach Perlman about repaying the loans. Lou came back and said he could repay $100,000 every quarter or so until the full $14 million was paid down. The uncle was like, that's not acceptable. The Chows hired a lawyer, but before they could do more... Perlman sued them in a Chicago court asking the family to stop demanding repayment. (laughs) Now, his centerpiece of the lawsuit was what is called a forbearance letter. In this case, it was a one-paragraph note signed by Joseph Chow saying in essence that his loans could be forgiven if Perlman didn't feel like repaying them. Now, if that seems a little confusing, (laughs) <laughs> to you, the Chow's l- lawyers did some investigation and they realized that the letter was a forgery. Uh, yeah. Because who the hell would forgive someone $14 million <laughs> just because you didn't you feel, don't like, feel like it? Like it's an insane, it's like at least be a little more believable. So as the discovery process continues, they're really unraveling all of Perlman's lies. By the middle of 2005, the Chow family and their attorney had solid evidence that Perlman had perpetrated a massive fraud. By August of 2006, Lou was all but broke. Soon after, investors stopped receiving their dividend checks and they would never see their money again. Nor would many of Perlman's aides, including his lifelong friend, Frankie Vasquez, who had been by his side the whole time. In early November, he sought to withdraw his portion of investment, which was about $100,000 or so. Lou told him he was on his own and his money was gone. After all the years they had been together, when Lou turned his back on Frankie, he felt totally betrayed. After this, Vasquez grew so distraught he couldn't sleep. And on November 11th, a neighbor heard the car running in his garage. (gasps) Police were called and opened the garage. They found Vasquez sitting in his white 1987 Porsche, the motor running, and a T-shirt wrapped around his head. He was dead. (gasps) Uh, One disturbing fact was that the police said when they got there, the garage door was so hot that they actually burned their hands when they tried to open it. Oh, my God. Isn't that awful? Now, by 2007, the jig was really up and Perlman had disappeared. In mid-February of that year, the FBI raided his mansion, hauling out cartons of documents, seizing all of his assets, and gaining um, entrance to his computers where they realized the enormity of the scandal. All told, they identified $317 million in missing money that was supposed to be in these EISA accounts. And the $156 million he had taken out in bank loans, all of that money was missing. There was no money left. By April, there had been no reliable sightings of Perlman for six weeks, but there had been reports he was seen in Israel, Belarus, and Brazil. It wasn't until a German tourist named Thorsten Eiberg arrived in Bali on June 9th that they got a hot tip. He was staying in a five-star Weston Nusa Dua Eborg, I'm sorry, Nusa, Weston Nusa Dua he noticed a pale, overweight American on the terrace. Now, back in Germany, he had read some stories about this boy band scandal, and he was certain the man he was looking at was Lou Perlman. He later found himself sitting beside the man in the hotel's internet cafe, and he was certain that it was him. So on June 14th, he snaps a photo of Lou Perlman, scans the internet, and finds a blog that's written by a Florida newspaper reporter named Helen Huntley. She has a blog that's jam-packed with information about this um, con, Lou Perlman, everything. He uploads the photo and sends it to her. She turns it over to the FBI, and the agents are 
there. They have an American embassy in Jakarta. They appear at the Westin the next day and they lead Lou Pearlman away. He had been registered under the name A. Incognito Johnson. <laughs> that was his name. I mean, I would leave Incognito out of wait, my fake name. Wait, Incognito was part of it? Yes! What's wrong with him? I mean, this is a man who clearly thinks he's not going to get caught. Now, at the end of the June, he's back in the U.S. Federal prosecutors announced his indictment on three counts of bank fraud, single counts of mail, and wire fraud, just basically all this kind of shit. Five days before his sentencing, he actually requests telephone and internet connections two days a week to continue to promote his bans. What? Like, this guy is delusional. What bans does he have left? I don't know, but judge the judge rejects the request. On May 21st, 2008, he is sentenced to 25 years in prison on charges of conspiracy, money laundering, and making false statements during a bankruptcy proceeding. In 2008, he begins his prison sentence with a projected release date of March 24th, 2029. Now, in 2009, Rich Cronin, who is the lead singer of LFO, has an interview with Howard Stern that is literally off the wall like it is one of it's kind of considered one of Howard Stern's most insane interviews because he really lets loose on everyone including his ex Jennifer Love Hewitt Hewitt (laughs) sorry and it's like obviously a lot about Lou Pearlman he claims that Pearlman had wanted to bang everyone and attempted to seduce him multiple times he also alleged that those who did oblige Pearlman were looked after on Stern he said that Lou was um worked up one time talking to LFO, like he was banging the table about this opportunity that the band had with a German music mogul. And he said to the band, all he wants to do is touch is to have you touch his penis and play with it. What? I don't want you to freak out. So I'm going to let you practice on me first. (gasps) So this is what he says to LFO. Uh, He also has a story about the aura thing, which is something that Lou, I guess, did a lot of times. That was the line, the aura. I definitely heard that aura bullshit, he said. I took everything in in me not to laugh. He was like, I know some mystical freaking ancient massage technique that if I massage you and we bond in a certain way through these special massages, it will strengthen your aura to the point you are irresistible to people. Cronin goes on to say, I swear to God, I had to bite my cheeks to stop from laughing. I mean, I know what it's like to be a chick. He was so touchy-feely, always grabbing grabbing your shoulders, touching you, rubbing your abs. It was so obvious and disgusting. He definitely came at people. He came at me. In my situation, I avoided him like the plague. If I went to his house, I went with somebody. I would never go with him alone because I knew every time I was over there by myself, it always led to a weird situation. Like he'd call late at night to come over and talk about a tour and you'd get there and he'd be sitting there in his boxer sheet, boxers. This guy was hairy as a bear. <laughs> Now, fellow LFO band member Brad Fischetti um, continued to refer to Lou as a friend and express sadness by all of his troubles later in life. As I mentioned before, Aaron Carter stands by him. Lance Bass said nothing ever happened. And Nick Carter, when asked if allegations were true, did not confirm it and hinted that bitterness, bitterness might be the motivating factor for all the sexual gossip. In 2008, Perlman began his prison sentence, as I mentioned, and shortly after, he suffered a stroke while incarcerated. He was diagnosed with an infection of the interline of the heart valve and had to have surgery. I mentioned before, he hated surgery, and he actually, that worst fear came true. He died during surgery to uh, fix this heart valve problem. This was in August of 2016. He was 62 years old. So... 
That's <laughs> that's the story of Lou Pearlman. Wow. <laughs> I had no idea this guy had z- absolutely zero experience in the entertainment industry. I honestly didn't know what his deal was, but I had no idea he had this whole like I thought his I thought he was convicted of ban- screwing the band over to be honest. I didn't realize he had this whole Ponzi scheme going. Yeah. Like I just thought it was related to his scamming of the band. That's what I thought too. Uh but it was pretty much completely unrelated. He was a scammer his whole life. I mean, the bands probably gave him a longer trajectory. Like it probably would have ended much sooner if he didn't make all those millions in the late nineties with these bands. Right. Uh, but yeah, just a fucking, the other interesting thing in that documentary is that guy, Al Gross, the childhood friend has recording. He recorded his calls with Lou. So they play those in the documentary and including some that were from prison because Lou would call this guy collect and just like whine. Like that's the disgusting thing. Even when he's in prison, it's still like it's a setup. Like I didn't do this. People are just trying to hurt me. Like Ugh. this kind of stuff. Like he had a paranoid personality, uh, including like I mentioned the cameras. He also thought he was always being bugged. Like so he would have people search for bugs in his house, like recording devices. Um, so yeah, just like he never, I don't think he ever got what he did was wrong. Right. You know, he never just, owned up to it either. No, and I think that obviously the personality type to even do something like that means you're never going to get it. Right. I think. Because right. no normal person could screw people over like that. Right. I think. Like, <laughs> like God. My mind is blown that the Backstreet Boys only made 12000 each in 98. That is that, mind-blowing. <laughs> that scene when they're in the documentary where they're at Lowry's Steakhouse, it was just like... I was like, I would, I could watch this whole scene. Like, I would love to just have seen that moment oh, with the yeah. checks. And Lance, like, can still feel like you can tell, like, it's still there with him. Yeah, that moment was just so shocking because it's like they had put all their faith in this man, right? And it was like that moment where they kind of realized, like, oh shit, like he fucked us over. Yeah, and you hear stories about horrible music contracts of all course. the time, but literally everyone who has seen this contract says it's one of the worst they had ever seen. Like which is insane, like that late in the game. Yeah. But all of them talk about like, you're just so desperate. Right. Like one woman, her name is Nikki Deloach. She was in Innocence. They interview her in the documentary. She said she so- showed her like attorney, like her entertainment attorney. And he's like, this is the worst contract I've ever seen. He's like, but you're probably not going to see another one. So it was literally like, like their choices are like have nothing or maybe this will work out. Right. That's like the choice for a lot of young artists. And these are young kids. They don't, they're not professionals yet. They're, they don't know. And they see his success with the right. Backstreet Boys. So they're right. like, that could be me. So yeah, maybe I'll get nothing initially. And a lot of these contracts are typically redone after success happens, but not with Lou Pearlman. Like right. he just fucking built them and he was bitter when they left. Like that's what's so fucking fucked up. Like he could have given these guys, treated them better and he would have stayed with them. Right. That's what's so crazy. Like he, he did would have, it to he, himself. Like he would have still made money. Yeah. Like he would have still been making a ton of money. Right. But he had to like, Fuck have it them. all and fuck yeah. them over. And and the mother, one of the mothers, I think it was Lance's mother, and the thing, she's like, you know, the six, him being the sixth member of the Backstreet Boys is so outrageous. He's like, she's like, but the truth is, they would have not even cared about that if he had treated them fairly. Right. Like, it was just the audacity of it. 
after screwing them over. Like, right. Not only is he taking all that money, but he's also taking a sixth of our salary. Right. <laughs> like, like, that's just insane. Like, yeah. But he, I think he really believed he was the sixth member. Of like, course he did. Yeah, it's so crazy. This guy is just sick. Like, yeah. And he's so pathetic at the end. You just like, there's just, it's just so sad. So anyway, that's the story. Well, now, <laughs> now I want to watch that documentary. It's really good. And I'm excited. I know we talked about this maybe a year ago about doing a, a boy band month. I don't know if we're going to do like a month, but we do have boy band stories there's boy a band, bunch. Boy band adjacent stories we want to cover. Yeah, I think that would be a good month so we can figure it out. No, I, I said we won't dedicate a whole month to it. Okay. We'll spread them out over time. Yeah. Well, we, we can do what I we don't want. Know. I'm not prom- I'm making any promises about a boy band month anymore. Uh, yeah, we don't make any promises on this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, we never raise expectations. You can, that way you're always happy. <laughs> They did something. They did something. (laughs) We will see you guys on Friday. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.